Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. Eric Nemchak here, alongside Stephen Trankwald. As always, we are continuing our 2022 WNBA team outlooks with the Minnesota Lynx. Getting right into it. These uh, intros are shorter and shorter. Minnesota Lynx, 22 and 10 in the 2021 regular season. They were the three seed in the playoffs, somewhat surprisingly, I think. Uh, they were fourth in net rating at 4.7 points per 100 possessions better than their opponents. They were fifth in offense, 102.8 offensive rating. They were fourth in defense at 98 even. They had the single bye to start the playoffs for the second consecutive season, but lost out to the eventual WNBA champion Chicago Sky on their home floor in the second round. So it feels like we, we didn't necessarily get a true look at this team in the playoffs with uh, Lasia Clarendon still limited with the stress reaction fracture, but such is professional basketball. Uh, Clarendon missed seven consecutive games before trying to come back in the regular season finale. And the one game playoff was clearly not themselves, I think. But other than that, you know, where should we get started with the Lynx? Well, just from a macro level, I think part of what you said, it was kind of surprising that they made the number three seed because they started the season 0-4. For the first time under head coach Cheryl Reeve, it's pretty surprising that a Lynx team would start that poorly. They were kind of out of sorts. You know, it was it was surprising to see because, first of all, I think she lost trust in reigning rookie of the year point guard Crystal Dangerfield. They had some injuries to, to start with, but they just didn't look like the very solid Minnesota team we expected to start the season. They brought in two max players in free agency, Kayla McBride and Ariel Powers. They also brought in Natalie Achanwa in free agency. And I think a big reason for their struggles, and part of it is maybe a lack of trust in Dangerfield, but the Ariel Powers at point guard experiment, you know, I think there was some optimism by Reeve that the system and Powers' skill set could make that work. But, you know, I just don't think it that it was. Yeah, it, it wasn't really going to work out. No, Ariel Power is a very skilled player, obviously, and Reeve probably wanted, you know, I mean, they made a significant investment in Ariel Powers uh, the previous offseason, so they probably wanted to get her, like, as many minutes as they could. Yeah, and um, just a way to kind of get all of their best players on the court yeah. at one time. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. But, uh, you know, sometimes if all your best players are on the floor, you know, they're not in their uh, best suited roles, and that's one thing we saw right away with the Lynx. They were really struggling out of the gate, particularly on offense. Yes, but they uh, they turned it around. Uh, on offense, they were second in the league in effective field goal percentage. Despite not really being a great three-point shooting team, they were number one in two-point field goal percentage. A lot of that was Sylvia Fowles and the aforementioned Laser Clarendon. They also got to the line a ton. They were top four in free throw attempt rate. They did turn it over, which I feel like has been kind of a, a recent staple of Cheryl Reeve teams, uh, high turnover teams. I think, once again, that could... Well, it's maybe not all on the point guard. Um, like I said, I think she kind of lost trust in Crystal Dangerfield. But I think that's also a thing, you know, when you're playing through the post as much as the Lynx did, uh, that does open yourself up to creating some turnovers. You know, post-ups are slow-developing plays. Um, Sylvia Fowles, for all of her greatness, has never been known as a, a turnover-friendly player. Don't want to put the blame on, on any one player. But yeah, yeah, the Minnesota Lynx, I think the turnovers really highlighted their lack of... Just their lack of ball handling, really. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, but let's get into Falls a little bit. It was an outstanding season for the eventual Hall of Famer, the Defensive Player of the Year, as well as obviously just a, an incredible, you know, overall statistical season with her offensive game as well. 
First in the league, as, as usual, 66.7% uh, true shooting. Also ranked second in defensive rebounding rate at 30.7%. She was the only player in the WNBA to rank in the top 10 in both block percentage and steal percentage. So that's pretty darn good. Uh, she played 30.1 minutes per game, averaged 16 points, 10 rebounds, and 1.8 steals and blocks in those 30.1 minutes a game. So yeah, for an age 35 player, Sylvia Fowles, Completely dominant, as always. And I think the plan coming into the season was, and I think there were maybe some quotes about this as well, that Sylvia Fowles would maybe see a little bit of a minutes reduction as she uh, gets into her mid-30s now. I think that that was a huge part of bringing in Natalie Achanwa on a very large, uh, relative to the cap, uh, three-year protected contract. And I think as as they tried to do it more and more, and as you know, the links just started off so poorly, as you mentioned— you know, it just kind of became untenable, and, and Sylvia Falls had to play her normal kind of Sylvia Falls minutes. Yeah, the uh, the quote-unquote load management kind of went out the window. I think Cheryl Reeve provided a quote that was something along the lines of, no, nah, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, like, we got to get our best player on the floor. But yeah, really remarkable. It really speaks to Sylvia Falls' longevity and her ability to, you know, keep herself in game shape for this long in her career. Uh, you don't really see players who are that reliant on their physical abilities to continue playing at this high of a level this late into their careers but especially coming off a season that she missed major time due to a muscle injury like she was out for the majority of the season with a calf strain yeah uh not to jump too far ahead here but she is uh gonna call it quits after this season so we can talk about that but yeah once again Sylvia Fowles defensive player of the year I think unquestionably the Lynx best player um as we have become accustomed to one thing I you know when you talk about defensive player of the year when when you think about Sylvia Fowles Obviously, the steals, you know, she never ranked in the top 10 in any prior season in steal percentage. Last season, she was fourth, 3.0% in steal percentage. That really speaks to her defensive. Like, she's not just a, a rim protector. You know, she she does, she can get out and move her feet very, very well for someone of her size. Also, they allowed significantly more free throws relative to um, field goals attempted with her off the court than with her on the court. So when she's getting on there and she's making plays on defense while kind of limiting those those high-efficiency points in free throws, I mean, you've got as good of a case for a defensive player of the year as any. So just to be clear, their opponents were getting to the line a lot less when she was on the court. Correct. Saying. Correct. The frequency, yeah. And, I mean, she's just, for my money, probably the best pick-and-roll center in the game. You know, she's maybe not, like, the number one player that you would want to have switching on a point guard or something like that. But in terms of just kind of playing it two-on-two, being able to defend two players at once, being in that position to keep her assignment in sort of tagging range and also corralling the ball handler, like, there, there's nobody better for my money. And she was a, uh, a pretty hefty part of the Lynx' uh, very effective post-up offense this past season in her own post-up game was incredibly efficient, almost one and a quarter points per possession on post-ups. That is, you know, just about as high as you're going to see from a real high volume player. And Sylvia Fowles is, you know, just about as high volume as any post-up player out there. So she was, you know, one of the four or five go-to sort of real back to the basket, low post players. And she was as, as efficient as she always is as, as anyone, you know, the one knock you might have on her, as you kind of were alluding to before, is that you know, she maybe just doesn't have the passing vision, um, the ability to kind of create high leverage, high value looks for her teammates out of some of those. But, you know, she still scores so efficiently in her own game that, you know, it, it kind of makes up for it. Yeah, usually I think I think, you know, the, the typical school of thought is that, well, post ups are going away. Maybe. But when you have a center as good as Sylvia Fowles, then I mean, you're, you're going to keep going to that, right? 
Yeah, they're going away for backup centers and kind of Players the, the good eighth it, yeah. to twelfth best centers in the league, not for kind of the the three or four very best post-up players, because that is still a massively efficient possession when you have one of those players. Yeah, the great um, ones are always exempt from uh, from trends like that. Should we move on to, you know, some of their perimeter players? Laser Clarendon and, and Caleb McBride, I think two examples of like how important fit in scheme and role are for like non-superstar players, players that, you know, have been effective in other places. But I mean, these were near career years or, or career years. I mean, Clarendon, of course, was cut from the Liberty. I thought he had a pretty good season in the bubble. I think I uh, picked them for my all-star team when we did that show, you know, a couple of years back now. Really, really would have helped the Liberty last year, even if, you know, she doesn't fit the kind of Walt Hopkins system of firing up a ton of threes and stuff like that. Maybe not an ideal fit next to Benajah Laney, but, you know, was always going to help that team more than Jazz Jones or, or Nia Odom and, uh, those types of flyer kind of young players. And they were 17 and five with Lasia Clarendon in the lineup last year. So as um, good of an example as any of a point guard coming in, maybe not impacting the box score a ton, like in, in terms of just simple counting stats, but the links clearly much, much, much better with Lasia Clarendon on the floor. I mean, the box score stats were, were good. I, I do agree with you though. Like it, you know, it doesn't scream kind of like all pro player or something like that, but Clarendon was just able to be a massively effective two-point scorer, 53% two-point shooting on 11 twos per 36 minutes for a guard is just so impressive. And and Clarendon in her own game is so, so strong. You know, not a perfect player, 25% turnover rate in the half court. So like you can definitely kind of nitpick some of the statistical stuff uh, of their game, but you know, the links just maybe were assigning a little bit too much credit in terms of kind of what Clarendon was able to do. But I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding. Like they really turned it around when Clarendon got in the lineup. They did. And um, and like I said, Crystal Dangerfield kind of, I don't want to say disappeared completely, but it was very clear that, you know, Shell Reef, and this is the thing, like when you're bringing a point guard, kind of, I don't want to it wasn't the middle of the season, but during the season, you say, okay, you know, here's the key, here's the keys to the car, you know, you're running the offense now, other ones going to the bench. That's a tough ask. And I think it really speaks to Clarendon's game, you know, the basketball IQ, and like you said, the ability to get into the paint, you know, they're not the most explosive player. He's not going to beat everyone off the dribble, but just two feet in the paint, taking their time and, and getting up a shot, which they can muscle over most of their individual matchups is very impressive that maybe Crystal Dangerfield just didn't have that kind of pace to her game. I mean, the thing with Dangerfield is she's so small and such a defensive challenge for, you know, to kind of build a, a competent defense around yeah, because she just has a target on her back that she just has to be so good offensively. And we saw a significant step back in her offensive performance last year. She went from 58% true shooting, 58.5% to 49%. And that was even with a increase in her three-point percentage because she just fell off a cliff from two-point range. Like the floater just wasn't there. She wasn't able to kind of finish at the rim in sort of that non bubble environment and you know there's definitely reason to believe that she'll kind of get back to where she was before um but it just wasn't there and it seemed like it really affected her confidence as the season went on mm -hmm. um and the team just kind of struggled for it and reeve was obviously searching for answers uh you know who didn't struggle was kayla mcbride i think both of us were pretty high on this signing i think we both liked the fit we both liked the the perspective fit you know um i think her time in las vegas was kind of people saw that coming you know people saw that relationship kind of ending and we were excited to see what a coach like Cheryl Reeve would do with a shooter of McBride's caliber, and she delivered. She she definitely delivered, yeah. We were talking kind of before the season that Cheryl Reeve hadn't really had like a player with this type of 
jump shooting versatility, you know, some decent kind of standstill catch and shoot three point players, but nobody that could really like bust you off a screen like Kayla McBride, essentially since Maya Moore. So Kayla McBride, you know, she's not Maya Moore, but she's certainly kind of reintegrated that element of Cheryl Reeves playbook. And that resulted in a career high true shooting percentage for Kayla McBride. And I think as we were all kind of hoping for a career high in three point attempt rate. Um, And she was still able to kind of increase her three-point attempt rate and her, you know, improve kind of her shot diet, I think, in in ways that we were kind of hoping for, but still stay above her career norms in free throw attempt rate, you know, maybe below her final season in Vegas, but still above kind of her career average. And she had a career high in two-point shooting percentage, a career low in usage, which is definitely notable, but, you know, not really all that much of a drop-off from those kind of final couple of Vegas seasons. And I think one of the big reasons that she was able to have such a great year was, as I was kind of mentioning before, like the change in her shot diet, more spot-ups, which is always like a a big Kayla McBride possession, like she's going to get a ton of spot-ups, a ton of threes, but also just coming off screens. 20% of her possessions coming off screens, an element of, of her game that, you know, we had not really seen as much of in Vegas and way less of the pick and roll ball handling. And, you know, one of the few players who I think her offensive numbers are going up because she's not trying to attack the basket so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've always said that uh, the mark of a really good coach is adapting, is changing the system to conform to the challenge rather than trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, if you will, and make the players play, you know, in a rigid manner, you know, and this is another example of Cheryl Reeves uh, coaching genius. Maybe, I mean, it maybe doesn't take a genius to say, okay, Kayla McBride, we're using, we're running you off screens because she's maybe the second best shooter coming off screens in the WNBA. I think we all know who's number one, right? But yeah, I mean, clearly playing to her strengths and just, really looking a lot more confident and more effective and just getting her buckets in, in much more fluid ways. Yep, and it uh, it resulted in, in some really great individual numbers and the offense was obviously much better with, with her out there. And as I was kind of alluding to, like she just doesn't have, I think, kind of like the the dribble shiftiness or like the finishing to get all the way to the rim. So, yeah, I agree. you know, in 2020, she took 32% of her, uh, so essentially a third of her possessions were in the paint and 75% of those possessions were coming from floater range. So she's just not, she just wasn't getting all the way to the rim enough. So when you are able to kind of turn more of those shots from threes and just have her do a little bit less off the bounce, maybe a little bit more cutting and, and some of those uh, off screen elements, you know, that that's maximizing your player in a way that, you know, I think you and I are, we stick up for Bill Lambeer more than a lot of people, I think. But, you know, this is kind of one clear use case where you just kind of maybe weren't maximizing the player you had there. That's a good way of putting it, maximizing your player's individual talent. Um, I think one more player we should at least discuss briefly was Nafisa Collier. She was out for a significant portion of the season, and this is another player who obviously the Lynx are going to play a lot better with when she's on the court compared to when she's on the bench. She did not have the typical Nafisa Collier season really on both ends of the court that we're used to because she was dealing with some nagging injuries, right? Yeah, it was a, a little bit of a down year. I mean, she only missed, you know, three or so games, but a career low in two-point shooting percentage, you know, still pretty good. You know, a big reason why this team was one of the best two-point scoring teams in the league, but, you know, only 49% compared to above 53% each of the previous two seasons. So, you know, a significant downgrade there. And then she was also not shooting as well as I think we have come to expect, you know, not a high volume shooter. I think that's one of maybe the things we would like to see more from Nafisa Collier, but 
she only hit them at 25%. So I guess you can say that she was maybe right in not taking them last year. Yeah, you know, she was struggling with that plantar fasciitis throughout most of the season, and that's an injury that just doesn't go away on its own. You know, that's something that if you're playing with it, you know, you got to take extended time off to really, quote-unquote, fix it, and that's obviously not something that she or the Lynx wanted to do. For me, it was pretty clear that she was, you know, dealing with some kind of injury, and that when it, when it was when it came out that she had plantar fasciitis, I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, but I don't really feel that much worse about her as a player than I did, you know, the previous offseason. You know, it's it's definitely excusable. Like, if, if, you're, if you're lacking the burst because you're dealing with plantar fasciitis, yeah, that's understandable, right? I would agree with you. Um, I definitely still consider her an elite player who had a down season. You know, her worst professional season, but still a player that I feel extremely comfortable in, you know, in high leverage moments to be a contributor for you on both ends, whether she's playing the three or the four. And, you know, she might have to, you know, if she feels comfortable coming back, slide between those roles I expect you know with as much talent as they have between the two kind of bigger wing spots the shooting guard and small four that she will end up playing a lot of four on this team again if she, if she feels like she's ready to come back before the end of the season whereas I think a lot of last year before Dantas got hurt like she was playing a, a primarily the small forward position and you know, I, I definitely see cases for why you'd want to play her at each. You know, she is a little small for the power forward. She can guard either admirably, but maybe will get outsized a little bit more at the four than she would at the three. She can definitely put pretty much any three that's guarding her into the goal at any time. But, you know, I still think things probably just open up for you a little bit. And you're just a little bit more versatile defensively as well when she's at the four for you. Something to add to that, I think when you talk about positional versatility, you... you refer to, okay, is this player playing at different positions because they're forced to or because they excel at both of those positions? And if he's a Kyler, can excel at either the small forward or the power forward position, you know? And that's, she, she brings that legitimate positional versatility, if that makes sense. I, I mean, uh, contrast her to a player like Dewana Bonner, who is also a three or a four, but Collier creates advantages for you yes. at those positions. Yes. And Dewana Bonner, it's more like, okay, how can we minimize her limitations a little bit more so? That's, that's a great way of putting it, exactly. Okay, so you alluded to uh, this big wing rotation that they're going to have this season. Let's kind of talk about that because they didn't really have that exciting of an offseason, but they did make one pretty key signing. They yeah. signed Angel McCautry. I mean, that that is a very exciting move. Obviously, yeah. McCautry comes with a lot of question marks as she's dealing with like her second major knee injury in two seasons as she's you know getting into her mid-30s in her own right. And as of this point, they haven't really lost anyone from last year's team. They're they're bring obviously they're going to have to make some cuts at some point, which we'll get to. But adding Angel McCautry to a list of pretty darn good wing rotation already. Kayla McBride, Ariel Powers, Collier, if she comes back this season, Bridget Carlton. Who okay, I take back my my comment about it not being exciting. I'd be pretty excited if I brought back Bridget Carlton on a training camp contract. That's that's pretty big in my opinion. But yeah, just a load of depth out there on the wing. Maybe a little cover, maybe covering a little bit for the fact that they don't have much point guard depth, or honestly, let's, let's just say it, not much depth at center either. But yeah, I mean, they have a lot of money invested in these players, a lot of guaranteed money. So it's basically a matter of okay, we're rolling with this roster, and whoever doesn't make it, I mean, it's it's probably not any uh, any slide on them as a player. Like they just literally don't have any cap room. Yeah, it does look like they're going to have to bring in 11 players. You, you want to get to kind of like the back end of the rotation now, uh, talk through that. So Yeah, yeah, sure. It looks like, you know, the Clarendon, McBride, Powers, Angel McCautry, Damaris Dantas, Collier, if she decides she's ready to return, 
Sylvia Falls, and Natalie Chano. Those are kind of like the locks of the roster, I would say. And then you're looking at three of, and Collier, you know, for what it's worth, has not been like suspended for the season. So she counts as one of their 11. So they're looking at three of these five players, Bridget Carlton, who in my opinion, spoiler alert, should be a lock to make the roster. I'm sure mm-hmm. you agree with me based on what you just said five seconds ago as well. <laughs> uh, Renaya Davis, their first round pick last year, the number nine pick in last year's draft, who has yet to play for them due to was it a foot injury, Eric, that she suffered last yes, year? Yes, it was a foot injury, yeah. Uh, Rachel Bannum, Crystal Dangerfield, and Jessica Shepard. So three of those five players. But let's get into Davis because she hasn't played and because she was, you know, a recent first-round pick. How did you feel about her coming into the draft? And, you know, has, I guess, hindsight kind of changed your mind at all on, on how you think she'll do in the pros? Yeah, you know, it, it always helps to get uh, a year plus of hindsight on this sort of thing. I was really high on her coming into the league, but part of that was because, like, that just wasn't a very good draft class. And, and, and uh, I should say, like, I think most people had her in kind of lottery range. Yeah. Um, and she ended I. up falling to nine. So it was a pretty exciting pick for Minnesota. Well, not as she didn't fall as far as the other uh, lottery, potential lottery wing did. But that's neither here nor there. Um what excited me about Renaya Davis is she is another really big wing. She's like a legit six foot one. And she's got those long arms, those long strides, who has the tools, big big uh, distinguisher there, has the tools to turn into a good defender. And I think she'll be able to defend up. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if most of her minutes come at the four this season, if she does play. I mean, who knows? Um, she's one of those players who just kind of glides across the court. You know, most of what she does athletically seems very effortless. I wouldn't consider her to be explosive, but she makes a lot of moves just look really, really easy for a player of that size. Um, I think that's a good distinction because I was watching some film on her and like she is moving faster or as fast as the rest of the players out there, but it really doesn't look like she's like hustling. Like I'm not saying this in a derogatory, like she, she her movements look incredibly easy yeah. uh, and she, like she, she doesn't really look like she has a ton of explosiveness, but her, she's very fluid with her movements. Yeah, that's that, that's that's right. That's exactly right. Downsides, you know, her jump shots kind of got like this weird and slow release. Um, it's pretty inconsistent. You know, she did take the three pointer at Tennessee, didn't hit it very often. Um, she doesn't get to the free throw line a lot, which I think is a little alarming. You want those uh, those numbers? I have them here. If you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you spit out some numbers here? She was thirty one percent on three hundred and sixty three point attempts in college. So she good pretty, sample size. She pretty much yeah decent sample size, and she pretty much had one good season. Her sophomore season, I believe, she was at thirty six percent. So uh, a lot of attempts, and they did not go in very often. And that happens, you know, with the sample size. We've seen plenty of collegiate players shoot really well from three for one season. And then you wonder like, what happened to their shot? They just didn't make them. Um, yeah. But like I said, she's not going to get to the free throw line much either, partly because she will, she loves the fadeaway jump shot. It's understandable because she can just rise and fire over most people who are defending her. But as we have talked about so many times already, it just, it's just better to take it all the way to the hoop. And I think she can get there just because she's that physically gifted but it's something that's in her shot diet, as you like to say, is going to need to change at the WNBA level. Yeah, she had a pretty hard... I mean, she only played three games in the WNBL, that's Australia's league, before her contract was bought out, apparently, by an Israeli team. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Where she did score much better from two. I didn't see any of that film. I really only saw her play in Australia. And, you know, I, I, I think there were definitely some just kind of flubs that you would expect her to make if she had like another opportunity at them. I also think that she did kind of have a little bit of trouble finishing over 
Australian league size, which is to say not much size at all. Yeah. And she does have a very long release, like you were saying. It's a very long, kind of more robotic than fluid jump shot, which is concerning because, you know, you just kind of wonder, like, what is she going to do well yeah, she can rise and fire in the mid-range, but you don't really want like a complimentary player to no. take those kind of shots. So what is her role going to be on offense as more of a complimentary like fifth player? Like she's not going to be demanding possessions away from Angel McCautry or Kayla McBride. No. <laughs> so like what what does she kind of add to your offense to negate maybe the things that she takes away from your offense? I'll be honest, I don't know. Because uh, I've never seen her really in a fifth option type of role. I mean, you don't really see... It's a tough ask for a player to go from, you know four-year star in, in D1 in a Power 5 conference to fifth option coming off the bench for the Minnesota Lynx. I think she could maybe turn into a good cutter because she's got that sort of effortless kind of movement. But again, I mean, she's so used to having the ball in her hands. That's that's an adjustment period. That That's a, that's a big feel for the game sort of thing. I think the Lynx, their coaching staff has been able to get a lot out of players like that in the past. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Renaya Davis, like, sticks on the team but is you know the last player off the bench this season just as she as she learns the WNBA game you know she's gonna need to make a a pretty significant adjustment like you said going from you know the the alpha dog on offense to not the alpha dog in the WNBA and if I can add to that sort of that learning curve she definitely does strike me a bit as like a doesn't know how defender at least in the WNBL film that I I saw but you know Given the tools that she has, the athleticism and the length, with good coaching, there's no reason that she can't get there if given the time to learn. And I, I think she will be given that time, at least for this season. They'll probably want to hold on to her like she was a first-round pick. They don't really have a ton of depth at four to start the season with Dantas still dealing with the injury that ended her season. And then, of course, Nafisa Collier uh, with her pregnancy. So I imagine Davis is going to make this team. What do you think? I agree. In fact, uh, I think the Lynx pre-draft move of basically punting their 2022 draft picks it bodes well for for Anaya Davis yeah I th- Cheryl Reeve straight up said like hey we can't afford to roster these picks so we're not going to make them but at the same time you know she held on to Davis as a conscious decision because I know I know it wouldn't just be like a sunk cost already if they just said okay we're going to trade Renaya Davis. I mean, they, they could have her. even just brought in that first round pick and made Davis compete for that spot exactly. against that player. So Exactly. So I think it bodes well for her that they at least have the confidence to say, okay, we're not making any significant picks this year. So you got to come back healthy and you got to be ready to be part of our rotation. Okay. So that that's two out of the three. That leaves us with one of Rachel Bannum, Crystal Dangerfield, and Jessica Shepard. What do you think? Oh, I'm going to go Dangerfield because I think... Who else is going to be playing point guard besides Leisha Claire? I, I think it'd be a mistake to have only one primary ball handler heading into the season. And Rachel Bannum did uh, make some comments in the media that Cheryl Reeve has been playing her at point guard. I mean, as okay. much as Crystal <laughs> Dangerfield had struggled last year, like I don't think that experiment's going to go very well at all. No, it, it, it never has. That's the thing. Like, Bannum has always turned into a two guard on whichever WNBA team she plays for. You know, If it's point guard, I mean, she did play a bit of point in the bubble season, I think, but that's because they just didn't have that many other options. And after watching last season, after, you know, the Lynx got off to that slow start because they had such little ball handling, I don't think they're just going to punt on Dangerfield. You know, I, I think they'd be digging themselves a hole that they don't really need to dig. And if memory serves me correct, uh, and I, I could be mistaken, but I, th- I think a lot of Bantam's primary ball handling in the bubble came pre-Odyssey Sims' return. So Dangerfield, you know, they tried Lexi Lexi Brown a little bit. You know, they were kind of forced 
to really throw Dangerfield into the fire. And, and they started Shanice Johnson at point guard. That's they, I totally they, forgot. That, yeah. that's right. I, I forgot about that too. I'm glad you brought that up. So it seems like they kind of wanted to try every every option except Dangerfield, and then she ended up playing extremely well that season. <laughs> um, but I agree with you. I think between you know one thing I'll say is like while they're waiting for McBride and potentially Dantas to make their return they could be a little bit light on shooting and Rachel Bantam you know if nothing else gives them one more kind of ideally if she's allowed to play this role one more real threat off the ball and you know Dangerfield I think can hit them a little bit but she doesn't have I don't think the shooting gravity that Bantam does but when this team is whole and I think you do have to kind of consider a couple weeks into the season more so than maybe the first couple of games when Dantas will be back and McBride will be uh, returning from Fenerbahce, you know, Danger Field to me just makes a lot more sense with kind of the rest of the roster. And I just think she's a better player. Okay. When in doubt, who's better at basketball? I agree. It's Crystal Dangerfield. With that being said, like, I think this team might end up struggling a little bit early because they are looking a little bit light in terms of their rotation players that are going to at least miss a little bit of time to start the season. Um, you had mentioned to me off pod that it looks like Kayla McBride might miss a couple extra days because Cheryl yeah. Reeve perhaps wisely is going to give her like a, a little bit more time uh, between Fenerbahce and her start of the WNBA season. So expect McBride maybe to miss a few games. Dantas, I don't think is still a full go yet. Um, so that, that leaves them a little light in the rotation. And of course, if he's a Collier not coming back until likely the end of the season, if she chooses to Angel McCarthy, like First of all, it'd be amazing if they could say, okay, Angel, you're playing 34 minutes tonight. I don't think that's going to happen, um, especially after seeing how effective she was on that 20 minutes a game minutes restriction back in Las Vegas. And that was one bad knee injury ago, right? So, yeah, that depth is going to be an issue. What do they do until then? I mean, Ariel Powers, to be fair, is a player who I think can play and contribute more than she showed last season, although last season she was, again, dealing with some injuries. Um, if she comes back healthy, I think, you know, she and Carlton can definitely hold on the fort until they get their depth going. Yeah, and Powers does strike me a little bit as a player who kind of demands and requires a specific role, which is yeah. kind of like um, a player that is sort of, you know, she kind of needs the ball in her hand, but she's also not like a creator. She, You know, she's kind of a, an instant offense player. She can get to her spot in the mid-range. You know, she can hit some spot-ups for you. She's not like a bad off-ball player, I don't think, by any means. But she is not going to sort of necessarily create value-added plays for other people but I think you know she is going to probably start at the two uh Clarendon and Powers probably your starting guards Angel of course the great career that she's had I imagine she's going to start at the small forward for them and then Sylvia Files as your starting center so you know with Dantas and Collier out uh what are you thinking in terms of like their starting power forward do they go a little bit smaller with Bridget Carlton do they start Renaya Davis? Um, Jessica Shepard is the other option if she makes the team, but I don't think she should necessarily. That's a good question. I mean, physically speaking, it'd probably be Renaya Davis, but that would be, given what Cheryl Reeve has, you know, given, I don't want to say lack of trust, she's been inconsistent with just kind of letting rookies go out there and, and, and play that many minutes. Of course, the exceptions were Nafisa Collier, right, and, and Crystal Dangerfield, and that was after as we said, many other failed experiments at the position. So, uh, I think I would go Carlton, you know, she, Carlton, she maybe would kind of get put in the goal against the very biggest fours, but she's had extremely effective stretches guarding Brianna Stewart as a four. So like, you know, the more kind of non power player type power fours, I think Carlton is, you know, she's probably a better team defender than Renaya Davis is going to give you right now. Definitely. 
And obviously, she's just a much more established shooter. She's going to open things up. And with Clarendon and Powers and Angel all out there with Sylvia Fowles, like you're going to be a little bit light on shooting. This team is going to need some some floor spacing. And I think Carlton, you know, I, I feel like maybe Reeve does not trust Carlton as much as I would, or, or it sounds like you would, but that that would be my call, I think. That's actually a really good point. And let's look at their, their schedule to start the season here. So they open against Seattle. You just mentioned Carlton matches up well with Brianna Stewart or has in the past. Then Washington, that's a team that might be forced to play small in some instances. Indiana, okay, whatever. Chicago, L.A., Vegas. So around the middle of May, they're going to start encountering the bigger teams. But who knows who's going to be back by then, right? So I think it's just a matter of you got to buy yourself some time. We said at the start at the start of the episode, they might struggle to start the season because there is just not any depth there. They just have so many people out. I mean, that, that group of teams that you just write off to me to start Minnesota's season, like not a ton of kind of power power right. forwards that are really right. going to kind of put Bridget Carlton in the goal possession after possession. So maybe they just like started as a stopgap against the teams that they would match up favorably with and then reevaluate like the middle of May, maybe. Okay, you wanted to talk about the closing five rather than the starting five. Well, l- let's talk about when this team is, is whole, maybe sans Collier, because I think that is a reasonable maybe expectation. Or, or do you want to include Collier in this conversation? Well, the team is whole. I mean, for starters, we're not, whatever Nafisa Collier decides to do after she gives birth, we're, we're okay with it. And I think it is kind of kind of weird to discuss what happened. Like, okay, when the player has her baby and she comes back, because like, we don't know when that's going to be. Every Plus, person is different. Everybody is different. Yeah, Collier is going to come back when she's ready to come back, and we su- obviously support her not coming back a, a moment sooner or, or later. Okay, so with that said, uh, let's let's just assume that the Collier is not there, right? But if Dantas is, I think you just, I think you have to close with her because she's going to be your only real four, right? Lacey Clarendon, obviously... Kayla McBride, who at small forward? I mean, I if you're getting anything close to what you're what you got in 2020, it has to be Angel McCautry. It has to be Angel McCautry. You know, she doesn't necessarily kind of fit, I think, as seamlessly with Falls and Clarendon, two players that are maybe clogging things up a little bit for you. But just from like a talent perspective, you know, last last year I kind of thought like Carlton is like sort of the the perfect fifth player over maybe say Ariel Powers or Demaris Dantas for this team because. She doesn't have the defensive liabilities that Damaris Dantes, but she also is just like a, a complimentary player who can just kind of space the floor, standing in the corner, hit some shots for you, and play good defense. But Angel McCautry is not Ariel Powers. She's, there's just a little bit of a, a gap on both ends of the court in terms of what McCautry has shown over the course of her career. You know what I mean? Well, you talk about defense. Angel McCautry is a really darn good defender as well. Particularly, you know, I, I don't. How many players in WNBA history have been better at just like jumping the passing lanes? Yeah, she's a great offense? defensive playmaker for sure. Yeah, great defensive playmaker. And when you have when you have a center like Sylvia Fowles, you can afford to, to make plays like that on defense if you're a perimeter player. So that's that's one thing to watch for as well. Here's the thing though: if she's on a minutes restriction, as strict as she was in Vegas, are they even going to be able to do that early in the season? Because they're not going to have any options on the wing. Are they just going to have to hope that you know? Okay, you got to stay healthy. I mean, I I think. They're going to be fine on the wing. Honestly, the power forward is really the only place that I'm really kind of doubting what their depth is, is going to look like. You know, they have aerial powers. Even without McBride, they have powers in Carlton and, you know, one of Dangerfield and Bantam. That's four players along with Clarendon to kind of fill two or three spots. So I, I don't really kind of worry about their wing depth. I mean, those players might not all fit together, but I think just from like a minutes allocation perspective, like they'll be fine. Oh, okay, hang on, hang on. I think we forgot one option. I know what you're going to say to this, but I have to at least throw it out there. 
Is there a chance they play both Natalie Achanwa and Sylvia Fowles together? Eric, how do you think that would go? I don't think it would go well, but I'm guessing Reeve might at least try it to start the season rather than play extremely small and or trust Renaya Davis to, to figure out playing WNBA defense right away. Yeah, no, you're right. We, we should have weighed that as an option a little bit more. Coaches are, I think, maybe a honestly, little bit honestly, more Steven, traditional. Honestly, you know, completely objectively speaking, I think that's more realistic. She's stuck with she's stuck with Natalie Achano. Like she gave her that big contract. They tried to get rid of it in the offseason. Nobody bit. So yeah, I just don't see. You know, you were we were just talking about this with Collier. Like, what advantage does Natalie Achano present to you as your power forward? She doesn't. But you don't really. What else are you going to do? Uh, 165k per year is that the advantage? Yeah, yeah. That that that's the reason. That's the reason. 165k per year because uh, she's not going to be playing much otherwise. So again, sunk costs, right? So yeah, that that might end up being the way that Reeve goes. Again, I would I would disagree with it. I think there are probably two or three better options on there. At least one with Carlton and you know Davis. Achanwa might be a better option than Renaya Davis. Like Davis has just shown yeah, I think so, so I little. Think so. so I can definitely see at least those two players, Achanwa and Falls, playing together a fair portion while everyone is out. Um, but things could definitely get tight. I think. But you know, we'll see. Well, let's go to strengths and weaknesses. We already talked about their wing depth, but I think it deserves mentioning again. I'm not sure you're going to find a stronger wing core in the league than McBride, Powers, McCautry, and Clarendon. That's just a really solid group. A lot That's of different skills there as well. A lot of different skills, a lot of different proven skills. I mean, these are all legitimate, good WNBA players. Although, I mean, it's maybe not, there aren't many players in that group who you can defend up with. That might be the uh, lone weakness there. But in, in terms of just pure depth, going up, up against everyone else, that's that's a heck of a that's a heck of a, a quadrant there. Self creation, I think, is going to be a strength for this team. You know, you have Angel McCautry, Lasia Clarendon, Ariel Powers. Powers yeah. You know, Sylvia Fowles in the post, which I guess that counts as self creation because once you get it down there, you're you're kind of doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's definitely one. They have Sylvia Fowles. That's that's a strength. Yep, it's a strength in a lot so of different ways. So that automatically means you're going to be good at defensive rebounding. You're going to be good at post up scoring. You're probably yeah. going to be good defending the pick and roll. Yep. I'm just going to say coaching. I trust Cheryl Reeve to make the best call and and to adjust in the middle. Like this is two years in a row now when the Lynx have really has maybe gotten off to a little bit of a shaky start, but then really come on like gangbusters late in the season because Cheryl Reeve made a committed decision to switch something up. And I think this is another situation in which like she has she's heading she knows she's going to be shorthanded to start the season, right? So that gives you know if if you give a really good coach time to prep for an adverse situation. You know the the great ones can can make it work, and I think this is a case where that's going to be that's going to be what we see. Weaknesses, I think the the question marks at the four, at least until Dantas is back, and even then, you know, you still maybe only have one player. You feel good about that until if and when Collier decides she's ready to come back. You know, shooting at least in, again until they get everyone back. As we were kind of outlining before, things without McBride and Dantas might be a little bit tight. I think you know Clarendon Powers. Angel question mark fouls like that is going to be a, a shooting light lineup. I think. Do you think that's fair to say? Very fair. And if Dantes isn't there, you're not going to have a stretch big either, unless you go smaller with Carlton. Which you know, I think when you have Sylvia fouls, like in some respects, you definitely feel a little bit better about going smaller. You know, that player might get beat a little bit in their one-on-one matchup, but you know you're not going to get killed on the glass at least. Like fouls is, is going to be like a good defensive rebounding team at least in by yourself. Okay. That's a good point. So basically just like depth everywhere, at least initially. 
Um, what else? What else? What else? I would say like having kind of that high level first team, all WNBA, like perimeter player. They, they, you know, Kayla McBride, I had her second team, all WNBA, but she's definitely, you know, as we outlined with her increased efficiency with her changed shot diet, like she's at her best when she's a play finisher kind of coming off screens as a spot up player, you know, you're not going to kind of put the ball in her hands and run pick and roll and have her set up plays for others or get all the way to the rim in, in her own offense. Uh, and I think, you know, as great as Clarendon was last season, you know, they're just not that level of perimeter player as well. Angel, you know, at least if she's the player she was in Vegas, maybe a little bit more still of like a play finisher, someone that's kind of curling and attacking than, you know, really bringing the ball up and, and running offense for you, you know? Okay, so so you're, you're speaking more to, to playmaking on the perimeter than, than play finishing. I think, I think Ariel Powers is a player who can go get a bucket as well, but... If you're talking about the threat out of the pick and roll, then I agree with you. Backup point guard is definitely a, a question. Maybe not a full-blown weakness because they have a couple options who have been good in certain roles in the past. But, you know, it's very, very easy to see whichever option they go, Dangerfield or Benham, that option not being good enough. Yeah, I agree. One other thing I had here, they have a team full of plus defenders, but they also have some players with some giant targets on their back. I think defensively that teams can kind of target come a, you know, three or five game playoff series, crystal Dangerfield or Rachel Bantam, again, whichever one of those players are still on the team. And, but also Demir Dantas, like no, if, if Collier decides that she's not ready to come back and Dantas is the one that's closing games, like teams are going to put Dantas in pick and roll over and over and over again. Yeah, and if if that player is a big too, that's that's the weakness is going to be magnified even more. I think, and you watch more NBA than I do, so maybe you can say if this is correct or wrong. But I, I think you're seeing more in the NBA of defenses or offenses rather, just hunting bad defenders over and over and over again. Like they're not really necess- necessarily running intricate offenses. It's just okay. How can we be? How can we attack this player from all these different angles? And you're right. Like if if Dantas is on the floor, obviously you're not going to be going at Sylvia Falls. So whoever is on Dantas or whoever, you know, is on that side of the floor, you're going to be running plays at Damaris Dantas. So, yeah. And, and Dantas point. is a, a player that I, I really like. I think she's, you know, we were on the WNBA Life Coach podcast uh, a few weeks ago and we talked about underrated players. Dantas was definitely a player that I thought about yeah, she's solid, yeah. throwing out there um, because she's a really valuable offensive player. But, you know, she is that player in the WNBA that especially because she plays the four. So she's matched up against a lot of star players that teams are going after you know she she's exactly what you were just describing so did you have any other weaknesses for this team no again depth initial depth is just like it's everywhere it's pretty much everywhere for this team and it's going to be it's going to be a challenge for them to overcome that at least early in the season granted i think their early season schedule may be i don't want to say soft but overcomable as favorable as you could ask for given the situation is that a diplomatic way of putting it yeah no i think so i think i think it would be reasonable to see them kind of overcome it but yeah i i guess i'm not too worried because like all these players i think well i shouldn't say all of them but mcbride you know she's coming back within a reasonable time frame you know the coach is just being a little bit more diligent than kind of other players coming back from their overseas commitment Dantas, it sounds like she's getting close i, I mean i guess that one's still yeah, I mean, we don't even know mark. So yeah yeah that's, that's she could true. be back second game of the season i'm like okay they're good um but overall like i think this is going to be a very good team they'll probably if i had to guess host and win a first round series you know maybe it's the three six maybe it's the four five 
But ultimately, I, I don't really see this team able to overcome kind of one of like the true contenders in the second round would be my kind of prognostication. You know, they'll probably be an elite defense or at least like a top four one just because, you know, it's Cheryl Reeve and it's Sylvia Fowles and they have pretty tough defensive players up and down the lineup stands a, a couple, at least for the regular season and maybe around the a middle of the pack offense for kind of all the reasons that we were talking about. Any of that sound unreasonable or, or unfair, you think? So basically high floor, low ceiling? Very, very high floor and kind of moderate ceiling. You know, maybe not, just not the, the highest ceiling, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see this team winning a championship. It just wouldn't be my first choice. You, you can't see them winning a championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, I disagree. I mean, it, it, I would be very, very surprised. I, should, I mean, okay, all right, all right, all right. How about this? How about this? Out of all the teams, where would you rank them in likelihood of winning a championship? I think of all the good teams that we've talked about so far, like I think it's less likely than Chicago and Seattle and Connecticut. And I think they have a higher floor than Washington, but a lower ceiling. Like Washington definitely has a greater chance of missing the playoffs. And I think they have a better chance of winning the championship as well. Okay. So like fourth, like fourth or fifth, huh? Yeah. It's not horrible. No, it's not. But I don't think there are, you know, last season excluded. I don't think there are usually four or five championship contenders That's, in the league. That is true. Year. That is true. Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll see who emerges. Maybe by like the the one third or one half uh, mark in the schedule. That's something to watch for. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to support the show, we appreciate it as always, and you can do so by following, rating, and reviewing on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Double Down WNBA. You can follow Eric at Nemchak E. You can follow myself at Trinkwald, and hopefully this won't be too outdated by the time it comes out and these training camp cuts have already been made, uh, which, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Regardless, we will. Uh, you'll hear from us again very, very soon because we need to get the rest of these done. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, be safe, be happy, and we will uh, we'll catch you next time.